0: the book of Judges. Why don't we study the book of Judges? Well, number one, it's in the Old Testament, right? We avoid the Old Testament like the plague, or at least a lot of us, uh, because the Old Testament's hard to understand. It's old. Uh, who wants to read anything old? Secondly, it's a bizarre book. It's, if you've ever read the book of Judges, and I encourage you to be reading through it as we go along, it's a strange, strange book. And I'm going to start out with a disclaimer. It is R-rated, all right? It, it's... It's, it's better than most Netflix shows. Um, it's got sex, it's got sex, it's got even more sex, it's got immorality galore, it's got lousy leadership, it's got civil war, all kinds of strife, betrayal, it's got riddles, it's got all kinds of stuff in it. And, and so you sit there and go, well, why are we studying it? Because it's in the Bible. The scriptures tell me all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and training in righteousness. Well, this is part of the Bible, so we're going to study it. And if you were in last semester, I told you at the end of last semester where we studied sanctification, how do you grow in Christ's likeness? What does it mean to become increasingly more like Christ? The reason we're going to do this study is because it fits directly in with sanctification. Even though it's an Old Testament book, even though it's about the Israelites, it's gonna help us understand why it's so important for us to grow in our relationship with God the Father and God the Son through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because in this book, we're gonna see the chosen people of God, the Israelites, who have been placed in a land given to them by God, guaranteed every promise of God, abundance, fruitfulness, blessing galore, and yet they can't seem to stay faithful. And so we're going to see a lot of parallels between their lives and our lives as Christians living in 21st century Western culture, surrounded by all kinds of evil and wickedness, and, and yet we somehow, even though we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, according to Peter, we still seem to have a hard time living out the godly life. And so we want to explore this book and see what we can learn from it, and there's a ton. Uh, I've been studying it for months now, and it's it's a great book that's going to have some eye-opening concepts for us to deal with, wrestle with, embrace, and apply to our own lives. One of the commentators I've used is Timothy Keller, and he says this about the book, and I love this: "It's despicable people doing deplorable things." I, I couldn't have named or described this book any better. That's what this is. This is not a model for righteousness. In other words, you don't go to the Book of Judges to find out how to live the godly life. Um, You get just the opposite, because you have these people. Even the judges that are shown in the book are not necessarily the best examples, and we'll see that as we move through the book. So it's it's an interesting book. It's a fascinating book. Well, where does it fit into the grand scheme of things? I've put this little chart in your notes just to kind of help you. It's it's a book that fits right in between the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the books that chronicle the kings, the period of the kings. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They give us kind of the history of how the Israelites came about. Genesis starts with the very beginning of everything, in the beginning God. And then we have the story of how he chose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he tells him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And that great nation was going to become the Israelite people. They end up in captivity in uh, Egypt. They spend 400 years there. They grow to an incredible size. And then God sends Moses to redeem them and deliver them out. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. And they eventually get to the land of Canaan that God had promised to Abram. He said, I'm going to give you a land And it's a very specific land and he had been in the land and he showed him the land and it went from the Mediterranean all the way to the river Jordan. And he said, all of this land is going to be yours. Yet Abram never owned any of that land. He never got to really spend any time in that land other than living in tents. The only land he ever owned was the land in which he buried his wife. But God said, this land will belong to your descendants and I'm going to bless them. So after they get delivered and they get to the land, they get into the land, and that's where we pick up Joshua, Judges, and the book of Ruth. It's the conquest. It's the conquest of the land of Canaan. Joshua tells us how they got into the land, being led by Joshua, the replacement for Moses, because he didn't get to go in because he sinned against God. But they get in the land. They conquer most of the nations within the land. And they get their allotment of tribe, to the, all the tribes, 12 tribes, get their allotment of land, yet they didn't finish what they began. They didn't get rid of all of the enemies in the land. And that's where the book of Judges comes in. And so we're going to begin to see what happens when the people of God are unfaithful to God and don't do what God tells them to do. When they don't obey completely, when they're incomplete or impartial in their obedience, what happens And the truth is, we all have impartial obedience, right? We don't always obey God. We don't always do what God tells us to do. And there are ramifications to that. There are consequences to that, as we'll see. So what's the time period we're looking at? Roughly 1406 to 1075 B.C. It's a 331 period of time. Why is that even important? The only reason that's important is it gives us a a kind of a an idea of how long a period of time we're talking about. We're not talking about five years, 10 years, 12 years. We're talking about a 331 year period of time between the book of Joshua and the end of the book of Judges. So for 331 years, the people of Israel have had plenty of time to do what God has called them to do. And they haven't, as we'll see. They won't. And so if we break it down, it's basically 1406 to 399, the conquest. It it basically took them seven years to defeat the majority of the enemies in the land and get their allotment of land. So seven years under Joshua's leadership, they had pretty much occupied most of the land of Canaan, but not all of it. And that's where the book of Judges comes in. So in 1375, Joshua's going to give his final address to the people, and we're going to look at that this morning because it sets up where we're going in this book. He's going to, at the end of his life, before he passes off this mortal coil, he's going to give an address to the people of Israel because he knows he's leaving and he's really worried about how they're going to handle it when he's gone. This guy knew his people well, as we'll see. 1375 to 1075 is the period of the judges. That's the time period we're looking at, and we'll be spending time in over the next 12 weeks together. So I've titled this lesson, Hand Grenades and Horseshoes. Why? Well, I don't know a whole lot about either one. Never held a hand grenade in my hand, never thrown a hand grenade, but I do know this. I've watched enough war movies to know that if you want to throw a hand grenade, you got to get it close. Close. You know, if you've got an enemy and you throw it behind you and the enemy's in front of you, it's not going to do a whole lot of good, right? You want to get it close. The closer, the better. Well, the same thing's with horseshoes. You know, you, you want to get a ringer. You don't want to just get it five feet close to the pin. You want to get a ringer. It's got to be close. And so, what we see in the book of Judges is a people who were close, but not close enough. They were kind of obedient, but not fully obedient. And God wants full obedience. Close enough isn't good enough with God. Partial obedience isn't going to cut it. And so the book of Judges is about these things. And and I don't want you to, uh, from the very onset, I don't want you to get depressed. All right? that Oh, my gosh, why am I studying this book? Why did I even come? But there's a lot of negativity in this book. There's no way to get around it. Because what we see is that these people had lots of unfinished business and as a result, unfulfilled promises and commitments. God's going to be very clear with them. When you go into the land, you are to clear out this land. You're to get rid of every nation that lives in this land. That's another reason why we don't study a book like Judges is because it paints a picture of God we don't particularly like. I've heard people say, well, I like the God of the New Testament. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Well, I'm sorry, but they're the same God. Um, Just at different time periods, and we see different aspects of God. Yeah, I love the God who sends his son to die on the cross for my sins. I love a forgiving God, a gracious God, but I can't get past the fact he's also a holy and a righteous God, and he brings wrath against all those who stand in opposition to him. And so we see in this book, God commands the people, you've got to get rid of every single people group who lives in the land. Eliminate them, annihilate them, don't leave any of them around. And we're going to see that they never do complete that task. They have unfinished business and unfulfilled commitments. They're disobedient. And anytime you and I, just like the Israelites, when disobedience makes its way into my life and your life, we ultimately become disloyal. We we disobey and then we kind of get cocky. I disobeyed. I didn't get burned for it. So then we just become increasingly more disloyal to God. What's the harm? He's not going to do anything. He'll forgive me. And you see this in the people of Israel that they disobey and then they become increasingly more disloyal, going after false gods, going after gods they weren't intended to worship. And they become increasingly more faithless. They begin to lack trust in God and put their trust in other gods or other kings or other kingdoms. And God isn't going to take that well. And he's also not going to take it sitting down. He's going to deal with it. And here's the saddest part about these people. God had promised them, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to live in cities you didn't construct. You're going to be behind walls you didn't have to construct. You're going to harvest from fields you didn't plant, orchards you didn't plant, you're going to have incredible abundance and fruitfulness and the presence of God, and yet they never fully experienced it. Now, why is that important? For those of you in the room, and I'm going to assume most of us in this room are believers. We have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to assume that we're all believers because in a room this large with this many men, some of you aren't. You may think you are, but you're not. You've never truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You grew up in the church. You were catechized, baptized, dunked, dipped, whatever you were. You prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle, you did something, but you never truly placed your faith in Christ. But for those of us who have, many of us lack faith in God and our lives exhibit fruitlessness. See, Jesus came and he said, I have come that you may have life. What kind of life? Abundant life. And yet some of us are like, when when does that start? When do I get it? Well, the problem isn't God, and it's certainly not Jesus Christ, so it's probably you or me. But we can be faithless and we can end up being fruitless. And that's the story of the people of Israel. And they compromised. They compromised and they became complacent in their relationship with God. And we're going to see in just a little bit, they became indifferent about God. One of the things that jumps out in this book to me that's been very um, convicting is um, I don't have enough concern about the next generation. I'll be 65 this year and... and, um, I'm not done. I'm not going to retire. But I do think about, you know, I've kind of done my job. I've, I'm kind of, you know, I deserve a rest. But yet this book has shown me that, Ken, are you worried about the next generation? Are you concerned about the generation to come? Because we're going to see that in Israel, there was another generation behind the first generation and that next generation was indifferent towards God. And they were the next baton bearer of the truth of God. And we need to be thinking about that. I don't know how old you are. You may be 80. You may be 40. You may be 20. But there's a generation behind you, regardless of your age, and are you pouring into that generation? Are you making sure that the next generation doesn't compromise, doesn't become complacent about their faith? Because guess what, guys? They are the hope of the world. They're the ones that are going to carry on what we hopefully have been carrying on their behalf. So the next generation is going to be huge. This book is ultimately about God's chosen people choosing to live ungodly lives. You choose to live ungodly. I choose to live ungodly, and I have a choice every day of my life to live ungodly, as do you. And that's what the book of Judges is about. It's the chosen people of God. Never forget, as we go through the study, this people only existed because God chose for them to exist. When God called Abram out of Ur, it was Ur of the Chaldees, the area known as Babylon. He was not a Jew. He was a pagan. Yet God chose him and he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. What nation? The Jewish people. The only reason the Jewish people exist is because God chose to make them exist. The only reason you're in Christ is because God chose for you to be in Christ. He sent his son to die for you. These people had a a very incredibly great relationship with God by virtue of God's grace, not their goodness. They were chosen and yet they chose to live ungodly. If you fast forward all the way to the end of the book, Judges 21, 25, there's this really sad indictment. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This verse is really important because what it tells me is these are the chosen people of God and they're doing what they think is right. And that word is actually righteous, good, holy. So they think they're doing the right thing, the holy thing, the righteous thing but it's according to whose opinion, their own. And see, that's the danger we face as Christians, that we can begin to live in a way that we think is right, looks good to me, I like it, I approve of it, but does God approve of it? And in the book of Judges, you're gonna hear over and over again, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, it's God's perspective that matters, not mine. It's God's perspective that matters, not yours, and we need to figure out what does God deem righteous and holy, not what do I deem righteous and holy, or what does the society deem righteous and holy. What does God look for in my life and in your life as we live our lives in this world? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the final two chapters of the book of Joshua, and you're thinking, Ken, I thought we were doing the book of Judges. We are. We are. But in order to study the book of Judges, you've got to understand the book of Joshua. It sets it up. But we're only going to look at the last two chapters because they kind of finalize this period in which the people get into the land under the leadership of Joshua. He's going to get ready to die, and he's going to give them this charge. He's going to call them together. So chapter 23, verse 1, the book of Joshua. A long time afterward when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders, its heads, its judges, and its officers, and he's going to tell them something. So he gathers everybody together, all the people. And he tells them, or we're told here, that it's when rest had been given to Israel. What's significant about that is that they have this period of rest in a absence of war. They've gotten into the land, conquered most of their enemies, taken over their lands. They've been allotted their appropriate inheritance according to the tribes. And now they're enjoying some rest. But Joshua knows what's coming next. This guy is very alert to his people's needs and also their weaknesses. And so he's going to tell them something. He says, I am now old and well, in adva- well advanced in years. And you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. What's he telling them? You guys have no excuse. You have seen what God has done all the way from getting them out of Egypt, getting them through the wilderness, getting them into the land, conquering Jericho, conquering Ai, conquering all these different cities that they were able to conquer with the help of God, through the power of God. And now they're enjoying all this abundance that's been given to them by God. And he's just trying to remind them, don't forget, you've seen it. You've seen what God did. It's the Lord your God who has fought for you. Don't get cocky. Don't get arrogant. Don't think that you did this. And again, think about your own life. Think about where you are, what you've accomplished, what you've done, what you own, what you enjoy. Never forget that without God's help, you'd have none of it. You wouldn't have life without God. You wouldn't have existence without God. You most certainly wouldn't have salvation without God. And he's just trying to remind these people Then he tells them, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain. Now, stop and think about what he's telling them. You're you're in the land, you're enjoying rest. God has fought for you, God has delivered you, and you've got more inheritance. If you got a letter in the mail today that said, You have more inheritance, you would come out of your skin. First, you'd say, Well, I didn't know I had any inheritance. But I've got more, What do I need to do to get it? You know, my, my mother died back in September, and I'm the executor of, of her estate, and um, her will basically said what little money she had left over her in her checking account was going to 17 of her grandchildren. So I was going to write the checks, divide it up 17 ways, but found out that I couldn't access the funds. So I went to the bank and I took her will. And they said, we don't take wills. I said, then why is there a will? They said, well, you have to have a will, like, but you won't take it. And they said, well, we don't, we don't see that as a legal document. I said, then how do I get access to these funds? Well, for the last, since September, it's now January, I've been trying to get access to that inheritance so I can divvy it up. And now I'm having to take it to court. And get a lawyer involved and spend more money to get what little money there is. And my grandkids or her grandkids are all waiting for their money. Because they've heard about this inheritance. Unbeknownst to them, it's not going to be much. <laughs> but See, they, they had more to come. They had more inheritance. He says, God has already cut them off from the Jordan to the Great Sea, from the Mediterranean all the way to the Jordan. There's, there's all this land that you've yet to possess. And then God said, or Joshua says, the Lord your God is going to push them back before you. He's going to drive them out of your sight. You're not done yet. There's more to be enjoyed. There's more to be had. And then he says, and when you do that, you'll possess their land just as the Lord has promised you. You're going to have more. But they had become satisfied with less. And they got complacent. Like, uh, you know, we got enough. I'm okay. I got my allotment. But the problem is, it's not so much the land they yet to possess, it's the people living in the land they had yet to possess. See, they're still surrounded by enemies. They're still surrounded by people who are going to tempt them and, and lead them into unfaithfulness. And God's saying, you got to finish your job. See, God had promised them more. And this book, as, as we look at it, is as we're going to see, it's not about the judges. But Ken, that's the name of the book. Well, I get that. But many of the names of these books were given long after the books were written. The book of Daniel is really not about Daniel. It's about the God of Daniel. The book of Judges is not about the Judges because these, these guys and one woman really aren't models to follow. In other words, don't use Samson as a model of leadership for your children. Okay? I, I really beg, don't do that. Um, don't use Gideon. Most of these guys were losers, and yet the book seems to be about them, but it's really not about them. It's about the God who sent them and what God does. It's also not about the Israelites, even though they play a major role in this story, right? It's all about what they do, don't do, faithfulness, unfaithfulness, compromise, complacency, but it's really not about them, and don't look to them for moral lessons, you know, in, in the past, I've read books like Joshua, many of the Old Testament books that chronicle the life of the Israelites, and I read it, and I, I get cocky, and I get arrogant and smug, and I go, God, what, what idiots. These people are so stupid. After all that God has done for them, and the older I get, I realize that, gosh, that's just me. I'm just like the Israelites. I'm a little complacent. I'm a little compromised in my faith. I'm just like them in so many ways. So don't use them as a moral lesson. See, the book's about God. It's about his holiness. It's about his righteousness. It's about his faithfulness. What's amazing to me about God is that God is still the God of Israel today in spite of Israel. What's amazing about God is that God is still my God in spite of me. Because I would have given up on me many, many years ago because of my unfaithfulness, my compromise, my complacency. The lack of fruitfulness. But see, God is faithful. But you can't separate his faithfulness from his holiness. He's righteous. He's holy. He expects much from his people. And he's going to demand much from his people. I love what Timothy Keller says about the book of Joshua. He says, it charts God's work in and through his people to keep his promises to them, to bring them into the land, to defeat their enemies, and to begin to give them blessing and rest. That's the book of Joshua. But see, we can't just read the book of Joshua and then skip to Ruth. We got to read the book of Judges to find out what do they do with all this? What do they do with the promises they've been given, the land that they've been handed, the enemies that have been taken care of by God on their behalf? And we're going to see that they don't enjoy blessing and rest like they should. He goes on and says, the book of Joshua teaches us that since God always keeps his promises, God's people can bravely obey and worship him. It's also a book which sets the scene for judges. See, the book of Judges gives us a glimpse of what happens when God's leader disappears, Joshua, he dies. And then what happens? What happens when godly leadership vacates the premises? It's usually not a pretty picture, and it's most certainly not a pretty picture in the book of Judges. Well, he goes on. Joshua, addressing the people says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, I'm about to croak. It's My days are done. I'm done here. He says, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Do you hear what he's telling them? Again, he's reminding them look at what God has done. Not one promise he has made to you has failed. God has never been unfaithful. God has never failed to keep a promise. Every one of them has passed for you. You're in the land, just like he said. He kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're now in the land. You're fruitful. You've multiplied. You've all been allotted property within the land of Canaan. There's even more property to be had. But the question is, isn't whether God's been faithful, it's are you going to be faithful? Are you going to do what God has told you to do? And then he drops this bombshell on him. He says, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. This is when they kind of swallow hard and go, what? You mean he's not going to keep blessing us? No, he's going to destroy you from off the face of the earth if you don't remain faithful. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Now see, this is the God we don't like to worship, right? Right? I don't like this picture of God because it's kind of scary. It's, a kind of, it's an ominous view of God, but it is an accurate view of God because God is holy, just, and righteous, and God hates sin in his people most especially. And so there are consequences to disobedience. There's consequences to unfaithfulness. And he basically tells them, you will disappear off this land given to you by God if you choose to worship other gods. If you choose to be unfaithful. So he's going to call them to accountability. And you're familiar with this passage. This is his great address to the people. He says, therefore, based on all that, you got a choice, be obedient or disobedient. But fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served from beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Stop right there. You can read this verse and blow right past it and fail to recognize that he's he's accusing these people of already being knee deep in idolatry. What gods are they worshiping? The gods of Egypt. How many years has it been since they left Egypt? More than 40, probably closer to 50. So for five decades, they've been out of Egypt and they're still worshiping the gods they worshiped when they were in Egypt. Even though God delivered them, led them, guided them, protected them, blessed them, put them in the land, they're still worshiping the gods that he defeated through the 10 plagues back in Egypt. And they're worshiping other gods, as we'll see in just a second. So he's calling them to quit worshiping these gods. Worship and serve the Lord. And then he says, if it's evil in your eyes to do that, in other words, you don't want to serve the Lord, which obviously you don't seem to want to serve the Lord, then make a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river in Egypt or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you currently dwell. So there's another group of gods they're worshiping the gods of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Termites. You know, they're, they're worshiping any, every god they can find. But listen to what he says. You're very familiar with this verse. Listen to what Joshua says. He's 110 years old. He says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Well, Joshua, that's easy for you to say. You're about to croak. But what, when he says this, what's he really saying? I, I have to picture his wife, his sons, his daughters, his grandkids all going, whoa, wait a minute. You've just obligated us to something that we didn't necessarily sign up for. See, he's saying, I'm guaranteeing, I'm covenanting on behalf of my descendants that they will stay faithful to the Lord. And that makes me think about my grandkids, my great grandkids, that I want them to be faithful to the Lord. I want them to be in the Lord and then faithful to the Lord all the days of their lives. See, he's committing them because he's serious about this. And I love what the people basically say, and I'm going to skip past it, but they basically say, yeah, yeah, we're all in it. We're we're in. We'll do it. We got it. We'll be faithful. And then Joshua responds to him because he knows them so well. And listen, what he says in verse 19, you're not able to serve the Lord. Man, what a punch to the throat. Yeah, we'll serve the Lord. We'll be faithful. No, you won't. You're not even able because he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He'll not forgive your transgressions and your sins. Guys, you don't seem to understand. When you say you'll be faithful, you better as heck be faithful because God takes it serious. When you say you're going to do something for God, you better follow through in your commitment because God is serious. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he's going to come and do you harm. Well, what's the problem? They're already serving other gods. It's not if you do, they already were. And now they've just made a commitment, but we won't anymore. Well, you know what? You better be serious about that because God's serious about it. He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you so much good. And what do they say? No, no, no. We'll, we'll serve the Lord. We hear you. We got it. You go ahead and die. We got it. Don't worry. And then Joshua makes him sign a covenant. He basically says, all right, you're going you're gonna to guarantee This commitment to God. See, what they needed to understand is that they were committing to God, not Joshua. He says, the Lord, our God, we will, they said, the Lord, our God, we will serve and will obey. Once again, they commit. We'll do it. We'll be faithful. So Joshua makes a covenant with the people that day. He gives them statutes and rules. He commits them to God that, okay, you've said what you will do. I'm going to hold you accountable. God's going to hold you accountable. You better follow through. So what did they say? We're going to serve the Lord. The Lord, our God, we will serve his voice. We will obey three times. They commit. And then they say, and we'll be our own witnesses. God can hold us accountable. Man, that's a dangerous game to play with God. I'll serve you. See, they're saying it to Joshua, but there's an audience of one in heaven listening in. And he's saying, will you really? Are you going to serve me? Are you going to obey me? And you know what? What? I will hold you as witnesses against yourself. And the book of Judges is all about what happens to these people when they're unfaithful. Well, verse 31 tells us, they serve the Lord all the days of Joshua. It basically tells us kind of a good news story that it seems to be that as long as Joshua's alive, they're faithful. As long as Joshua and the elders who outlived him are alive, they remain faithful to God. We do know they're still worshiping other gods. So the picture is, they're, they're adulterous. They're, they're married to God, but they're having affairs on the side. They didn't divorce God. They didn't walk away from God. They hadn't completely abandoned God. They were just kind of double dipping. They got Moloch, they got Ashtaroth, they've got all these gods they're worshiping with God. Well, that's not what God wanted. That's partial obedience. That's incomplete worship. And so they're faithful, at least for a period of time. As long as Joshua was alive, they seemed to love the Lord. But see, God's not stupid. God's up in heaven. It's not like he's going, I had no idea you were worshiping other gods. I thought you were faithful. No, he sees. He knows. See, they're living off his faith, Joshua's faith. Are your kids living off your faith? I've told every one of my adult kids at some point in time, I want you to have your own faith. I don't want you to believe what I believe. I want you to believe what you believe. And that may look very different from what I believe. I hope not. But go to the mat with God, wrestle with God, but don't live out my faith because my faith won't do you any good. But see, they were living off Joshua's faith, the elder's faith. And they're about to get exposed in a huge way, in a major way, in a very painful way, in a very unpretty way. So let's skip to Judges chapter 2. Why Judges chapter 2? Because Judges chapter 1 actually comes after Judges chapter 2. Okay, it's out of chronological order for some reason. So we're going to start with 2. And here's what we hear. Joshua dismissed the people. It picks up the story from the end of Joshua. He's just read the riot act, given his last words to them, and it says he dismissed them. They all go back to their inheritance to take possession of their allotments of land. And once again, verse 7 says, the people serve the Lord all the days of Joshua. Again, sounds pretty, sounds great, sounds wonderful, Ideally, They're doing the right thing. The problem is they're still worshiping other gods, and they haven't gotten rid of the enemies in the land. So what happens? Well, the problem is he dies. He's true to his word. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 and they buried him. He's gone. He disappears off the planet. Joshua dies. And we can look at that and go, well, everybody dies. But the sad part is Joshua had no heir apparent. See, Joshua existed because Moses appointed him his heir to pick up the baton when he couldn't go into the land. Joshua didn't have an heir. He dies, and what we see is godly leadership disappears. And when it goes away, it's a dangerous time for the people of God. See, we're fortunate as a church, we have what I believe to be godly leadership, not speaking of myself, but Cody, Ted, Bill Egner, and others, I think we have godly leadership. But what if that godly leadership were to just go away? What if they were taken away? What would happen to us as a fellowship? Would others step into the gap? What we're gonna see in Judges is, God had to bring in people to step into the gap and they weren't always the best people. That's not an indictment on God, it's more of an indictment on the state of the moral character of the people of Israel. See, godly leadership is huge and you can't assume it's just gonna transfer. That somebody will step into the gap, somebody will pick up the baton, Ted and the elders of this church were wise enough to begin the process 10, 12 years ago of moving Cody into the position to take over his place when that time came. There was a plan in place. Joshua didn't have that plan, and we see the results of it. He dies. And verse 10 of chapter 2 of Judges is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. It says, and that generation was gathered to their fathers. What generation? Joshua, the elders, and all those people that had been in his age group, they all die off. And here's where it gets sad. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. And this verse gets my attention because I think, okay, what about the generation coming after me, the generation coming after you? Are they knowledgeable of the Lord. And what does that mean to not know the Lord? Does it mean they're ignorant of Yahweh? They don't even know who he is? No. It's not about ignorance. It's about indifference. They know who Yahweh is. They know all the stories about the Red Sea, the 10 plagues, the Passover. They know about the journey across the wilderness. They know all that stuff. They just don't care. You ever read the Bible to your kids and they just kind of stare at you like blank slates going... Why are we doing this? There's an indifference in young people, children, young children, that's acceptable. But when they get to be 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, you don't want that indifference to continue. And yet that's what we see here. They're indifferent and they become complacent about the things of God, the power of God, the presence of God, the mercies of God, all that he had done for them. And I love what Gary Hendrick says. We come to the heart of the second generation syndrome, It's a lukewarmness, a complacency, an apathy about amazing biblical truths that we have heard from our childhood and from our teachers, and we just don't care anymore. It doesn't matter. And we become apathetic about the things of God. Herbert Wolf says, people cannot thrive on the spiritual power of their parents. Each generation must personally experience the reality of God. See, my grandkids at some point are going to have to experience God for themselves I can't just keep telling them stories about God. They've got to experience God. And the same thing is true of you and your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. So verse 11, it picks up this theme and makes it even worse. They didn't know God. They didn't understand God. They were apathetic. And it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods. They were unfaithful and God is angry. Guys, don't don't blow past that. The God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament is still the God today and God gets angry about unfaithfulness. He despises adultery in his people. He still has anger against when we turn to other gods of our own making and we don't turn to him. It says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Because they abandoned him. See, when you get indifferent about God, you will ultimately become unfaithful to God. When you don't think about all that he's done, when you take for granted all his goodness and graciousness, you will ultimately become unfaithful. Your complacency will turn into adultery. You, you, you may not realize it, you may not see it, but you will become adulterous in your spiritual journey. You will seek help and hope from other sources, whether it's your income, your career, your kids, friends, politics, you'll find something to fill the gap that you have rather than going to God. And as you become increasingly more unaware of God in your life, you will become increasingly more unfaithful to God. See, that's the picture of Israel. Think about all that he had done for them, and yet they're unfaithful. They've abandoned him. This next generation comes along, and they are reaping all the fruit of God's goodness, and they just don't give a rip. And they have an insufficient awareness of all of his power, and it leads to incomplete obedience. We're not going to finish getting rid of these people we're fine. We got enough land. Leave, leave the Ammonites alone. Leave the Philistines alone. They're not hurting us. And they were so mistaken about this. So Judges chapter one, very quickly, here's the picture of what's going on. There's a list of these tribes. Manasseh, what's the problem? They didn't drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30: Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Aco. The inhabitants of Sidon, or Alab, or Akseb, or Helba, or Aphek, or any of their other cities, they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemesh. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. This one's the saddest because Dan had this land given to them by God. They were living in it, and the Ammonites come in, and, or the Amorites come in, and push them out of it and they're living in the wilderness now. You see the picture? Incomplete obedience leads to what? Conquest, but the wrong kind of conquest. Partial obedience is disobedience. There's no way around it. You can't go halfway with God. Half-hearted worship is unacceptable. He wants wholehearted worship. And anything but that is spiritual adultery. And compromise leads to conquest, but not the kind you're expecting. You become the conquested one. And that's not what God wanted. So I'll close with this. Judges 2, 2 through 3. You, God says, have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you because you choose to be disobedient and you choose to do it your way instead of mine, guess what? You're going to have it rough now. Thorns in your side and also a snare because they were disobedient to God. So here's your three discussion questions. And I'm going to preface these questions because I know you guys well. When we talk about enemies... When we study this book and we talk about enemies, the first thing that goes through my mind and your mind is you have a people group that you think of, a political group that you think of, that, well, they're the enemy. It's the pagans, it's the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Parasites. It's all those ites out there that that are out there that disagree with me, that aren't, they're, they're pagans. They're the problem. No, the problem is in here. The problem for the Israelites was really not the Canaanites, It's what the Canaanites were gonna do to the hearts of the Israelites. See, don't worry about the pagans out there, worry about the Christian, you, your heart. So I want you to discuss some of the enemies that you and I allow to remain in the land of our spiritual lives. See, I'm told in scripture to get rid of my old nature, to put it off, to take it away, to do away with it, and to put on Christ, put on the new nature. What do I still hang on to that I'm just not quite ready to get rid of, like the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Jebusites? Secondly, in what ways do we compromise God's will for our lives, fruitfulness, joy, peace, abundance, by refusing to remove those things from our life? What's the harm? I don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to go to battle. I'd rather have peace. No, that's not God's way. And then finally, I want you to look at Judges 2, 11 through 15. How is the modern-day church guilty of these same charges, and what should we do about it? Father, I pray this morning as we wrestle with this book and these passages and these concepts and these thoughts, that we would take them from the academic level and move them into the heart change level, that you would speak into each and every one of our hearts about where we are with you. Are we obedient? Are we committed? Are we promise keepers, or do we become complacent, half-hearted in our obedience, incomplete in our commitment to you? Are we unwilling to remove those things in our lives that have crept in, that we've allowed to stay there, that are pulling us away from you and polluting our relationship with you? Father, bless the discussion time. May it be rich and deep and open and honest, and may it be encouraging, life-changing, because, Father, we know you're all about life change. We know that you want to do great things in the life of every man in this room, and I pray it begins today. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have fun.